Hello there. You are listening to On Educating Girls, Creating a World of Possibilities, a podcast produced by the Coalition of Girls Schools. I'm your host, Trudy Hall, who years ago began wondering about educating girls and, for the last 40 years, never stopped doing so. I include myself in the fine company of educators for whom the education of girls is both a professional calling and a personal mission. For those of you who have listened to Uneducating Girls before, you know that the focus is always on providing opportunities for the adults and girls' lives to learn more and understand better what girls need to thrive, both in school and in life. So the content of our conversation today may surprise you. I'm hopeful it will connect you in new ways and with fresh insights to the world of girls' education. Today, I'm thrilled to speak with two women whose vision for the education of girls has linked them to each other and to girls' schools around the globe. Two women who think big when it comes to educating girls. My family believes in me. I dream big, but my family dreams even bigger for me. That's why I'm a global ambassador for 10 Times 10, a global campaign to educate women. That's why I co-founded SOLA, the first and perhaps only boarding school for girls in Afghanistan, a country where it's still risky for girls to go to school. The exciting thing is that I see students at my school with ambition grabbing at opportunity. That is Shabana Rasij Rasik in 2012, a newly minted college graduate at the time talking about her big dream to educate girls in Afghanistan through starting SOLA, S-O-L-A, the School of Leadership in Kabul, Afghanistan, the first and the only residential school for girls in Afghanistan. Her story is at the center of our episode. Her story, the story of SOLA and where it is now after the Taliban's return to power in Afghanistan in 2021, is only possible through a global network of support she created through her visionary leadership and relentless commitment to a single goal. In her words, quote, the education of Afghanistan's girls may be the single most effective antidote to extremism in that country, end quote. At no other time has there been, among girls and young women, such a deep sense of shared potential, purpose, and power. There is no doubt the time for girls and for girls' schools is now. And that's why I'm so pleased to announce NCGS's repositioning as a global coalition. With more than 300 girls' schools in 15 countries and growing every day, our membership and our mission will more accurately and more inclusively be reflected by our new name, the International Coalition of Girls' Schools. And that was Megan Murphy, the executive director of the National Coalition of Girls' Schools, recently announcing that this coalition of girls' schools around the world, whose membership has become significantly more international since 2012, will now reposition itself as a global resource for girls' schools as the International Coalition of Girls' Schools. In the last decade, during her leadership tenure, Megan, too, has been relentless about a single goal, connecting and collaborating globally with individuals, schools, and organizations dedicated to educating and empowering girls. How have the visions of these two forward-thinking leaders become intertwined? And what does their story have to teach us about leadership in a global realm? This is a story about leadership done well through collaboration and integrity. 
In fact, you may want to share this episode with your daughters after it inspires you. I never imagined Afghanistan would fall as fast as it did. No one imagined it. But I will tell you this. On August 1st, we were bringing our students back to Kabul after their semester break. On August 15th, the Taliban were in Kabul and in control. And on August 30th, we were holding our second day of classes at our new campus in Rwanda with our entire community together and safe. I know that sound clip from Shabana seems to carry us straight to a happy ending. Yes, the girls of Sola are safe, for now, but it leaves out so very much. What sort of leadership did that chapter take? Where did help come from? And what's next? Let me introduce Shabana and Megan so we can find out. Born and raised in Kabul, Shabana finished high school in the U.S. through the State Department's Youth Exchange Studies Program, then enrolled at Middlebury College. It was in 2008, as a student of Middlebury, that Shabana co-founded SOLA. Shabana is a 2011 magna cum laude graduate of Middlebury College, and she holds a master's from Oxford University. In 2018, Shabana was awarded the Malale Medal, one of Afghanistan's highest national honors for her work in promoting girls' access to education. In 2019, she was named to the Forbes 30 Under 30 Asia List in the social entrepreneurship sector. In 2021, as the events in Afghanistan shocked the world, the Washington Post named her a contributor to their global opinions section. Megan earned her BA from Allegheny College and an MA from the University of Pittsburgh, Her early career in educational administration took her through admissions and development leadership roles, working in the college realm initially until she was recruited to the Marlboro School in Los Angeles. She joined NCGS in 2012, where her development of global strategic alliances led to the first ever Global Forum on Girls' Education in 2016, an event which now happens triennially, where educators from around the globe come together to exchange ideas about innovative approaches for academic excellence and the healthy development of girls. She is well known in the girls' school arena as a thought leader in global conversations related to advancing girls' education. Let me offer a warm welcome to both of you. I feel so privileged to have this opportunity to be with you as we talk about dreaming big and what that takes. And Megan, I'd like to start our conversation by asking you how you first learned about SOLA and the vision that Shabana had for Afghanistan's girls. Trudy and Shabana, it is so nice to be with you. Um, I actually met Shabana many years ago at a conference for boarding schools in Washington, D.C., and I knew right away that I met someone who had an incredibly important vision for girls' education in Afghanistan. I also knew that Shabana possessed the agency and self-efficacy to make her vision a reality by establishing SOLA. Right then and there, I was keenly interested in following and supporting Shabana's work. And so from that meeting, we stayed in touch. Sola became a member of our coalition, 
And then Shabana, you attended the Global Forum on Girls Education, and that drew nearly 1,000 educators from 24 different countries who all came together to talk about best practices for teaching and learning of girls. And Shabana's presentation at that convening was incredibly well received. So Shabana and I have been friends and colleagues, and I certainly have been a follower of her writing and her work uh, ever since we met. Uh, thanks so much for that. That tells me that Shabana knew exactly what she was doing when she started her school, that she came to uh, the resources that were offered by the organization. And Shabana, from the moment I heard your TED Women talk in 2012, I was there in the audience, very exciting. It was clear that you were a woman on a mission. Can you tell us a bit about your thought process in expanding global awareness of your vision? How did you go about networking in the earliest days of Sola's existence? Um, thank you so much, uh, Trudy. It's a pleasure to be speaking with you and Megan today. Um, the core uh, ideas behind Sola, the creation of Sola, was that we would create networks of uh, sisterhood across Afghanistan. Um, and uh, by definition, it needed to be expanded. Um, you know, if we wanted to create that uh, in Afghanistan nationally, we needed uh, SOLA as an institution to model that in its uh, work and operation. And so um, it was incredibly important for us to be um, connected to the right networks and and to be learning from uh, models that already exist and has uh, worked for centuries. Um, boarding school uh, model, uh, SOLA bringing it for the first time in Afghanistan and while localizing uh, this model of education in Afghanistan was um, very critical for the success of uh, SOLA, it was clear that we had so much to learn uh, from our sister schools across the world. Um, and it was really wonderful to know at, at that early stage that there are these uh, coalitions and networks that already exist supporting uh, similar initiatives. So I know that you know, books are going to be written about the journey that you and Sola have made over the last decade or so. And I'm apologizing in advance for skipping lightly over some of that history that some of our listeners may not know about. But I want to dive into what's happened over the last year. I've heard you say, quote, when you face the uncertainty of what might be, you can turn it into the certainty of what will be, end quote. How did you go about facing the uncertainty of the return of the Taliban? And what factors did you have to take into consideration? I have to be honest, uh, Trudy, um, that when when this was becoming more eminent, um, I was facing this uh, uh, on two levels. Um, on a deeply personal level, I was in complete denial, um, really. Uh, it could not and still failed to wrap my head around uh, the decision um, to unconditionally withdraw um, troops from Afghanistan. Um, I was in utter shock, uh, didn't believe it could happen. Um, so even to the very end, um, August 15th, when I got that news um, that the Taliban had entered Kabul city, I was in Kabul city and I still could not believe it. But that was a very personal human response throughout this whole time. Uh, I kept on telling myself, this can't happen, this can't be. And the world has invested so much 
both in terms of human resources and financial resources in Afghanistan. This just can't happen. But then um, there was this other side of me as a, uh, a founder of uh, the first and only private all-girls boarding school in, in Afghanistan, in a country where it was already so sensitive to operate this model of education for girls, uh, inviting girls from the most remote parts of the country uh, to come to Kabul city to a safe and nurturing space um, to be educated. And in that role, I felt an enormous sense of responsibility. Uh, I knew um, even before the uh, April 2021 announcement um, that, uh, in fact, uh, much, much earlier than that, I knew that uh, there will be a time when, if it comes to it, operating as usual would be incredibly um, irresponsible. Precisely because Sola is a school of uh, nearly 100 girls um, where our students come from, 28 of the 34 provinces. Uh, it's core to our mission that we recruit girls from the most remote parts of Afghanistan. Each year we look at our admission season as, a, as an opportunity um, to bring girls, Afghan girls, who might be, um, uh, you know, on the verge of not being able to continue uh, with their education. Uh, all incredibly bright and smart girls, but may not have the resources to continue. And, and naturally, that means girls coming from different parts of the country. So a lot of our, without being able to go into much detail, a lot of our decision-making uh, was informed by looking at, constantly looking at the districts where our girls were coming from against the districts that were falling to the control of Taliban. Um, and I think what guided uh, me and my team, uh, who was incredibly plugged in throughout the entire process, was the fact that we put the continuity of learning for our girls at the center of everything we were trying to do. Their safety, their safety first, but then immediately after that was the continuity of their learning. A lot of times when people talk about Afghanistan, it's always about the recent events of Taliban takeover. And even though COVID is so present in our lives, so much of our uh, recent decisions have been uh, shaped by, by COVID challenges. But when it comes to Afghanistan, that almost never uh, crosses people's minds uh, unless you remind them. And we were already dealing with those challenges, uh, ensuring that our girls have continuity of learning in that kind of environment and then this happened. So we were navigating a lot of uncertainty to begin with. I know that, Megan, you became aware through your global network of girls' schools that girls' schools should come together somehow in support of what was going on with SOLA. Can you talk a little bit about the networking that occurred as we began to hear news of what was going on in Afghanistan? Um, sure, Trudy. It was, um, I believe it was August 30th, and I received a call from Dr. Mira Biswanathan, uh, who was very interested in making sure that uh, our community and our network uh, convened uh, because we needed and wanted to see 
SOLA students uh, continue their education uninterrupted. And so sure enough, within 48 hours, uh, a group of school leaders came together in the Zoom room and collaborated in order to do whatever we could to see a continuity of education for SOLA girls. And so, you know, Shabana, as you've just mentioned, you're sort of bravely holding your school community together through COVID, through, you know, what's going on in um, Kabul. Um, and yet that taking a break from all that intensity, I know as a leader, you also had to stay focused on the future, too. So you're you're dealing with two worlds. You're dealing with what's going on immediately, but you're also dealing with where you want to see um, Sola go. And you've always spoken about flexibility and adaptability as being key for leaders. What are you and your team thinking about creatively? You know, um, like I mentioned earlier, um, the continuity of uh, learning for our students uh, was at the core of um, the decisions that we were trying to make. And uh, prior to, um, you know, collapse of uh, Afghanistan, uh, we'd been looking at a number of um, contingency plans. Um, we had looked at um, several options. We had looked at, uh, do we uh, send our girls home so that they are out of harm's way uh, and in a safe environment with their families and provide them with uh, smartphones or laptops and monthly internet uh, access uh, and switch them to online learning like we had done um, in the beginning of COVID, uh, though not perfect, but we thought of that as a solution. Uh, and as we were exploring that possibility uh, one of the things that really concerned us, uh, this was in early summer, uh, The uh, we saw a trend uh, in which the Taliban were increasingly um, targeting uh, the electricity infrastructure and telecommunication infrastructure, uh, which meant uh, that it was very likely that a lot of places uh, in provinces and in cities would be cut off from electricity access. Um, and even if our students had these laptops or smartphones, if they didn't have electricity to keep those uh, charged <laughs> or powered, it meant we lost access to them, even though to begin with, that access was not gonna be a perfect one. Um, and so then uh, our nightmare became in that scenario that we would send the girls home and then we will have no way of contacting them or reaching them. And then they would have no way of being able to reconvene. Um, similar to this, we explored many other um, possibilities. Um, and the one that ultimately made most sense uh, to us was um, conducting a study abroad program for all of our students. Um, we initially looked at this uh, with a lot of flexibility. This could be a semester abroad, or this could be a year abroad. And that's how we all communicated that to um, the parents of our students. Um, the idea again was that there was so much political uncertainty uh, in Kabul 
um, there were far more questions about how um, the unconditional withdrawal of troops would take place. What would that mean uh, on the ground? Um, there was already so much, um, so many challenges uh, where, you know, in terms of coming to any kind of uh, negotiated, political negotiated um, settlement or, or agreement with a set of conditions that the announcement of making the withdrawal unconditional uh, removed any incentive for uh, for the Taliban to really agree to anything. Um, and even though a lot of people uh, in Washington, D.C. and in Kabul uh, did not imagine the scenario at that time of Taliban takeover, um, I think even Taliban at one point said they were quite surprised that they <laughs> took over Kabul uh, city or the entire country that quickly. But um, what remained, uh, the, the reality was uh, this additional layer of uncertainty um, that we hadn't um, dealt with, no one had dealt with. And though um, from Sola's inception in 2008 to date, we have always navigated uh, uncertainty and we have done so incredibly brilliantly uh, when it comes to educating Afghan girls. But the thought process behind the study abroad program was that uh, let's take our students for an amazing experience. We've always done this um, every year uh, for a smaller group of students, taking them to uh, partner schools in uh, India, for instance. We had done that for the past five years. Uh, let's, let's do this, but this time for the entire uh, student body. And until... Um, you know, we get some clarity about what's going to happen uh, politically in Kabul, our students will be out of immediate physical harm's way, able to get a great experience uh, studying abroad, and then we will return. Um, uh, remember that at this point, we were fully, fully engaged in constructing a campus at the heart of Kabul city. Um, so the thought process was, let's take our girls abroad. Uh, let's continue to accelerate building our own campus in Kabul. And while the semester or a year um, is in process, uh, when the students return, they will come back to our own uh, permanent campus in Kabul city. Um, so uh, we switched gear that made most sense uh, we could logistically look at it and then we switched gear to trying to identify um, host nations and um, you know uh, there was a lot of details that we needed to sort through um, and then uh, in July um, there was a decree issued by the Taliban um, that shook the nation um, I remember that night really clearly uh, after the the decree was um, the decree came out, um, a, a, which said that families who had uh, daughters between the ages of uh, 15 and older um, that they had to be married off to Taliban uh, soldiers.
Kabul city that was already dealing with so much uh, felt uh, like it was suffocating. Um, and um, the next the next day, uh, I was in conversation with a couple of my colleagues uh, at Sola uh, who have young daughters, um, uh, one high school age and university age, and um, and she came to me. Uh, telling me that um, she and her husband uh, spoke about uh, this decree and they decided uh, that uh, they had gone back and forth as to what they are going to do. Um, should they should they arrange uh, marriage for, for their young daughters so that they won't have to be subject to being married off the Taliban or they had explored many options and they finally had settled on um, uh, buying poison and uh, they decided that when the Taliban take over Kabul city that they're going to poison their daughters um, I cannot fully express um, what I felt and how I felt when my colleague was sharing this with me um, it was quite sickening, um, but I also felt so helpless. Um, I felt so angry and ashamed, and um, there was just a, just a range of emotions I was experiencing um, with a colleague who was sharing this with me. Here is uh, an Afghan woman uh, who grew up without an education uh, and always talked about how she wishes. She had the opportunity to go to school, uh, but didn't because of war, because of years of war, and how she's been so invested in her daughter's education. That story is heartbreaking, it's unbelievable, it's unsettling, and it's happening to you as a person, as you're leading. How are you able, are you able to separate what is happening to your heart and your mind when you hear a story like that and still continue to lead an entire community? Or is it important to you that you don't separate, that you stay with one, with, with the way you feel, and the and that's part of how you lead? Because that story really is uh, an unbelievable story. I mean, it clearly it happened, but I mean, it, it just touches us in an in, inhumane way when we hear it. There is a reason why I am sharing this story um, to, um, you know, what we ended up doing. Um, when I heard this um it was very clear um, that when we were looking at our study abroad program, uh, it couldn't be just our hundred girls studying abroad, that it needed to be um, taking the entire solar community abroad uh, for a year. And so that expanded. That's how Sola went from a school of nearly hundred girls um, to a community of 250 uh, people uh, once we left uh, Afghanistan. 
we uh, we were incredibly incredibly fortunate um, to uh, to be able to uh, relocate um, to the amazing nation of Rwanda. In fact, as I'm telling you this right now, exactly at this time, six months ago, I mean, literally to the hour, uh, we were uh, on a plane, the entire community of uh, nearly 250 people on a plane uh, from Doha uh, to uh, Kigali um, exactly six months ago. Um, and I remain incredibly grateful to um, the nation of Rwanda um, for opening their arms um, to hosting Sola. Uh, it happened quite fast, it happened quite efficiently, and uh, our community since arriving there, our students, our colleagues, um, they have not um, felt like refugees or outsiders. Um, so what ended up happening was uh, we did leave Kabul, not just with the nearly 100 students, but it was our 100 students plus several of uh, SOLA graduates uh, who were studying at various universities in the region, but were home for the summer break or had graduated from those uh, universities and were working in Kabul city. And uh, they were part of it. And then uh, so were our faculty, staff, and immediate family members of our faculty and staff. And that's what uh, made up our nearly 250 uh, community members. Um, it, you know, it was difficult um, to, um, to have to define uh, what our community uh, was going to, who, who was going to be part of that community. So to your question, uh, sometimes that separation isn't helpful. Uh, sometimes, in fact, keeping all of this as a leader together is necessary. Um, and I have, I have remarkable colleagues. I have um, the leadership at SOLA. Um, they've all been in, in the success of SOLA. Uh, it's no surprise that we arrived in Rwanda on August 25th. And by August 29th, our students were back in classes. We resumed classes that quickly. Um, and it was precisely, again, um, very, very detailed planning in this incredibly difficult time of how do we ensure that our girls are the center of everything we do uh, at SOLA. So I, I keep hearing several things when you talk about SOLA. I hear the criticality of the continuity of their educational process, and I hear a consistent theme about their physical and emotional safety. Um, Megan, as you listen to um, Shabana tell the story of what it took to take a community and actually make it global, uh, that whole community changed the way it was 
pulled together. It had different membership. It lived in a different country. Um, you yourself are facing a leadership challenge in which you're going to have to create a global community just as Shibana has had to move through. What do you think about that? Like, how do you, as you listen to her story, what keeps you centered? What are, what are your driving principles as you build your community? Sola's journey does really highlight for us the power of connection and community. And I think that that is inherent in who we are as a community of girls' schools. It also makes us sadly aware that Afghanistan is not the only country in which girls need our support and our commitment. And Shabana, through telling your story of Sola, it's just a real opportunity for us to shine a very bright spotlight on the critical need to ensure that we have safer, higher quality education for girls globally. And that's where our International Coalition of Girls Schools is positioned to make those connections and to build a stronger community of girls' schools. I think, Trudy, the pandemic really required us to develop new patterns of work and new patterns for connection. And what we learned at our coalition is we're, we were able to bring together 2,500 educators over 85% of our membership to find solutions to delivering uh, quality education to girls during the pandemic. And through that, schools were no longer working locally and, and regionally. They connected across the globe. And we saw firsthand how that combustible energy lifted up those regional discussions and school-centered conversations to new places, to new heights. And through that, we learned the greater possibility for the girls who we serve in our schools. It's interesting, our International Coalition of Girls Schools includes SOLA, as well as schools throughout Canada and the United States. Our schools uh, are in Australia, in Rwanda, in South Africa, and a total of 16 different countries, and they're incredibly diverse. They are public and state schools, they are independent, they are day schools and they're boarding schools. But what really brings our community of schools together is this shared commitment to the transformative experience that happens when you bring girls together. And I think a set of shared values. Our schools, whether it's SOLA or a school in Johannesburg, girls' schools share this commitment to agency and self-efficacy, to community and collaboration, leadership and integrity, and an incredibly strong commitment to equity and inclusion. And I'm as you describe that, Megan, um, and this need for girls around the globe to really feel empowered to take on their role as change makers and to become this next generation that lifts up um, you know, the issues that humanity needs to deal with and tackles them firsthand. As you both think about that, I want to go back to what drives you personally. I'm always intrigued when I talk to strong, successful women leaders when they have been guiding organizations through significant change personally 
Do you have a set of values that guides you, Shibana? What, what, what is your true north? What keeps you moving steadily through times of transition and change? For me, um, you know, uh, it, it is, it is uh, our vision, Sola's mission and vision. I have never, ever had any doubt in my mind about Sola's mission and vision. For me, it's as critical as breathing air. Um, you know, I have never had to sit down and wonder, uh, am, I, am I doing what is right? I know that it's core, it's a core belief of mine. Um, for me, and because of that, Sola is not, uh, Sola is not a job. It's a vocation. <laughs> it's um, it is critical um, to my identity uh, as an Afghan woman growing up as a young Afghan girl. It is critical to um, a prosperous Afghanistan and the region and the world. And so, it always keeps me focused and grounded. So when I would talk about the need for Sola, uh, I would always, and I continue to always bring it back um, to a global level. And that is, while we're addressing the needs of girls' education in Afghanistan, it is linked to this problem that out there globally, we have 150 million plus girls who are not in school today. And that's not okay. We're in 2022. Um, if today it's acceptable that girls in Afghanistan cannot access education, it will become acceptable in another part of the world um, the next day. We shouldn't look at these situations in isolation. They're all linked. And we should be living in a world now when it should absolutely uh, anger us, but most importantly, drive us to action, knowing that there are so many girls who are not in school. And it's not just someone else's problem. Now, years and years of longitudinal studies, evidence-based research show that addressing girls' education or their access to education is one of the lowest hanging fruit when it comes to uh, addressing so many global crises, whether we're talking about eradicating poverty, we're talking about health crises, we're talking about climate crisis, any of these crises, we need to send those girls to school as soon as possible because it's not they who need our help. It's actually we need their help and we need their help as soon as possible. So that's why it's so important to truly understand the value of global networks. Um, one that Megan is now uh, working uh, really hard to um, amplify and it's so, so, so important. Now, uh, it sounds to me as if the two of you could link arms and go on a mission around the globe and begin to educate all the world's girls so that the other 50% of our population um, could step in and take on their responsibilities to make the world turn better. 
Um, Megan, as you hear uh, Shivana's vision for SOLA and the criticality of tying that vision to a global movement for girls' education, um, I know you personally have some strong feelings on that subject. What do, you, what do you think about? What vision does it call to mind for you? Educating girls is the single most important pathway to a more peaceful and prosperous planet, period. All of our planet's biggest challenges, whether it's climate, polarization, equality, racism, um, will not be solved effectively and efficiently if we don't have more women around the table of decision-making. And I think that those indispensable women who we need around those problem-solving tables of decision-making are going to come disproportionately from girls' schools. Um, because what we do at girls' schools is we're incredibly committed and united in elevating women's leadership worldwide. And we do that inside our schools by making sure that our students are educated and empowered to assert their voice in the world and to claim claim their space in the world. Megan and Shabana, I could talk with the two of you for a long, long time. And unfortunately, our our episode has to come um, to an end here. I am going to end our conversation today by allowing our listeners to hear a very powerful clip from Shabana's 2021 TED Talk given just last fall. She challenges us in a way that I think we cannot ignore to address the issues both of you are so eloquently talking about today. So thank you very much for, for joining us, and I will let our listeners hear Shabana's wonderful words. So today I issue another challenge to the world. Do not look away. As the noise dies down and Afghanistan slips from the front pages, do not look away. In nine years, it will be the year 2030. It's the year I will celebrate my, 30, my 40th birthday. So here's my dream, my birthday wish. In nine years, I hope to be speaking with you again from Sola's campus in Kabul with all my students there. I will see you then, if you do not look away. Thank you. This has been the eighth episode of On Educating Girls. And as you have learned today, it is now officially produced by the International Coalition of Girls Schools. As always, we would love to hear from you with thoughts and suggestions. Please send comments or questions to podcast at girlschools.org. And join us next time as we seek to inspire you anew with insights and resources you can put to use. Thanks for listening. It's important to the girls in your lives that you do.